Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I just want to take a few minutes and talk about a few different things that matter. Things like thank you. Thank you to our community if you're a longtime listener or just your first or second time here on the audio platform listening to the daily podcast. We appreciate your support, becoming part of the community, and making this job better. And so with that, if you have any thoughts, ideas, critiques, people you think should be on the show or topics or ideas that you want to send forth, your direct line to the show is through our new email, podcast at nationalfireradio.com. Send us your thoughts, ideas, people you think would be good for the show, anything that's on your mind, send it over to podcast at nationalfireradio.com. That's your direct line right to the show. On top of that, if you feel inclined, please leave a review. Give us a five-star review. That would be fantastic, and we greatly appreciate it. We're working hard to gain your trust and to build a community, so any support that you can give us back only betters the mission. So we appreciate that. Like, subscribe, and share, and share this with your friends and talk about it because it makes the job better. Lastly, I need to mention, we want to talk about the National Fire Radio website, www.nationalfireradio.com. That is where you can get your merchandise that supports the show and the mission and the platform of National Fire Radio. Well, enough about all that. Let's hop into the daily episode. So thanks for tuning in. See you at the next one. Now, the daily episode. Our first sponsor of the podcast, Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his crew have been manufacturing helmet fronts, aluminum helmet fronts, since 2017. Over 200,000 plus shields have been manufactured by Taylor and his crew. Custom helmet fronts shipped within 24 to 48 hours. Whether it's one piece to a 500 piece department order, they'll get them out under two days. They're doing incredible work, 100% customizable product. Their product is top shelf. Not only are they doing aluminum helmet fronts, they're doing gas cards, playing cards, keychains, medical cards, and charts. Pump charts, street signs, custom signs, banquet awards, you name it, they're doing it. Go to taylorstins.com. And if you do order, use this promo code, NFR sent me, all one word, NFR sent me. You'll get 15% off at checkout. That's because we have a strong relationship and friendship with Taylor from Taylor's Tins. They've been a longtime supporter of the National Fire Radio platform, and I appreciate their support and friendship. Without further ado, the daily episode. Hey, everybody. Jeremy, National Fire Radio, back on the podcast today. Today's going to be a little bit different of an episode than what we usually do. Today's going to be talking about a specific topic in the American Fire Service, something that I think traditionally represents the fire service from very early on, and that's the Gamewell fire alarm system. And today I have a historian who speaks incredible depth on the Gamewell system, Gary Spone. Gary, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Absolutely. It's nice to uh, have you on. We connected through a mutual friend. Uh, I was looking to do some historical pieces uh, on the podcast about different Americana type things that represent, you know, the old school American fire service. And the Gamewell system certainly is representative of old school, you know, uh, New Englandish firefighting. And so I guess my question to you before we even hop into some of the history of it and the background of the Gamewell system is more about how you got involved with it. Well, <laughs> I guess it goes back to my uh, public school days. Um, I lived in a town, Pottstown, Pennsylvania, that right. had a Gamewell system. 
And uh, my dad, actually, uh, an electronics technician, actually worked on uh, the vocal arm part of the Gamewell system, which was voice transmission uh, between fire stations uh, in Pottstown. Okay. Uh, but uh, me more specifically, I walked past a Gamewell fire alarm box for 12 years of school. Okay. And actually that box is now in my collection, but <laughs> that, that was one thing that, that, uh, you know, I guess really brought me into looking at, at fire alarm because I walked past this fire alarm box and I wanted to see the inside of that in the worst way. They, they tested the fire alarm system every Friday at noontime. And uh, if, if it was during the summer when there was no school and uh, box box 2641 blue on the diaphone i was on my bike instantly to get to that alarm box so that i could see the inside of it and and see okay. the guy who was testing it and and that actually did happen one time so i i do still have some memories of seeing the inside of the box i couldn't be very specific about it but I, I know I saw the inside. So I love um, that. Were you enamored by then like fire engines too? Or was it like, what you know, as a kid growing up, was there an influence there? Or is it just the fact that that red shiny box on the telephone pole or on its own pedestal just spoke out to you? I, it was the box. I, yeah. No, look, I, I was enamored by the fire engines sure. as well, but it wasn't something I, I didn't, uh, you know, long to visit the firehouse and, and see the rigs. Uh, but yeah, if, if the diaphone went off, I was looking for the fire engines and, and counting the number and looking on the list to see where, where the engines were headed. Well, I think that's a great way to segue then into how people were able to use these boxes and what the numbers mean and so on. Because I think there's going to be a lot of people that are listening to this episode that really don't know much about the Gamewell Street system, right? And so maybe right. just a little bit of background, if you wouldn't mind. Maybe we start from the beginning, its early years of where it came from, and then we can, we can go to uh, where they are today. Right. Well, there was a guy by the name of Dr. Channing back in the uh, very early 1850s that really devised the system uh, that, that first appeared in Boston. And, uh, you know, there, there are some folks, by the way, that, that think the, that Boston was not really the first system. I think it really was the first system of boxes, but I think New York uh, had some fire towers and and they were doing something along the lines of bells or something in along those lines okay. to alert firefighters to where fires were located. But it was Channing uh, and and his buddy Farmer who uh, they were both electrical kind of guys and and they were the ones that devised the the Boston system, which uh, had a number of boxes. Boston was divided into districts. And uh, there were so many boxes in each district, whether whether they um, rebroadcast alarms to the other districts when one came in. I'm not sure of all the details on, on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the Boston system actually was turned on April 28th of 1852. OK, the next day, the 29th was when the first fire alarm rolled in and and that was from uh, Cooper and Endicott streets 
in Boston uh, near a church. Yeah. And and that box is actually, I believe, uh, box 1212 now in the Boston system. Not obviously the same box. Sure, but, sure. Um, early, early on, uh, I, I think from what I've read anyway, the, the boxes, you actually had a telegraph key and you had to personally operate the telegraph key uh, to contact the fire department. And of course, that was not a satisfactory situation because people excited, you know, when there was a fire, they they didn't do that correctly or they didn't read the instructions or who knows what. But that wasn't the best. And, and eventually that turned into turning a crank, right. which um, operated a, uh, a wheel, kind of the forerunner to a code wheel mm -hmm. uh, to transmit a series of pulses to the fire alarm office. Right. Uh, that didn't work out so well either because there, there was no control on the crank to determine the speed. Oh, okay. Uh, or, or the direction of, right. of turning the crank. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so so that, that was an issue. And eventually what that turned into was a clockwork, which is what is still used in game wall fire alarm boxes currently. Yeah. So now let's, let's so let's break this down for people that have never been able to look underneath the cover of one. Right. Everybody knows the iconic look of them, the red, you know, the red rectangle vertically with the with the triangled roof on it, you know, the slant roof. It's just such an iconic look. But underneath all that, there's a lot of it's a very simple system. But there's a lot of different things that go into it, right? And so as you pull that lever, you pull the outside door down, which is typically white. You pull that down, and you pull a lever down. And as soon as you pull the lever down, you enact the gears within. And then you mentioned the code wheel, right? So right. As, as you talk about boxes, boxes are numbered. And on that code wheel is a manual uh, punch-out, right, of the number, right. which then brings it down the line. So maybe you could explain the process a little bit. Well, there, there's a series of teeth on the wheel that, that stick up from the circumference of the wheel. And those teeth, when the wheel rotates, operate a switch. Right. And, you know, when you get right down to it, a fire alarm box is nothing more than a switch. But the rotating code wheel and those teeth and the timing of that code wheel turning is what transmits a particular series of pulses right. to the fire alarm office. And that series of pulses is then, these days at least, <laughs> digitally interpreted. Right, 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 but, right. But, <clears throat> but way back, it, it was uh, actually went on an, an indicator, a wheel, <clears throat> a series of wheels that... Uh, actually displayed the number, and then that turned out to be unsatisfactory for a number of reasons. And and then actually holes were punched in paper. Yeah, it was a ticker that, tape. Uh, a ticker tape. That, yeah. Uh, the the fire alarm office just had to look at the tape uh, to see what number was was being sent, and then they looked at a list. Or actually, many of those fire alarm operators, from my understanding knew the box numbers and where they were located so they didn't even have to look at a list. Yeah, one of my one uh, of my favorite where the one is. of my favorite things we do Gary is when we get to travel and particularly in the northeast a lot of these older firehouses 100 200 year old firehouses they still have the box numbers written up on the wall. 
And, yes. you know, the old timers remembered exactly the neighborhoods of which every box would ring. It's incredible. Yes. To see the history there is unbelievable. And it should be said, too, because a lot of people listening to this might not fully understand how they all work. So with each box is a number, and that number that rings out, as you pull that lever, that number then rings out to the dispatch center, right, to communications, that alerts responding companies to that box, that neighborhood. So it doesn't give the direct address of the incident, but they arrive at the box and check the neighborhood to determine where the incident is. Right. And the, you know, the idea was that once you pulled a box, you were supposed to wait at the box yeah, right. <laughs> for the fire company to arrive, which I guess didn't always happen. Yeah, well, right, exactly, especially when somebody's walking home late from the bar at night. <laughs> right. Just pulling them as they go, which used to happen all the time in a lot of different cities. Um, and I, I, I do have to say, Jeremy, that, you know, back in the, in the 1950s. Sure. Um People, you know, cities were complaining about false alarms, and and supposedly that was the reason that many systems were taken out because yes. of false alarms. Correct. But if you look at the literature from a hundred years before that, there were false alarms as well. I'm sure. I'm false sure. False alarms are nothing new. No, it's not for sure. It's a nuisance, but it's also people that either want the want to see the fire department. The other thing too is the boxes become, you know, in in communities originally, right? I mean, even as communication came forward, but when you're looking at the early 1900s up through the 50s in 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 uh, poverty-stricken neighborhoods and so on, this was the only line of communication. So, it wouldn't just be for fire, but firemen could arrive on that box and it would be a domestic violence, a murder, a, a, a crime scene, because it's the only outlet they had to contact the authorities. Yes. And and you know what? Even these days in areas, particularly around Boston, right? they make it a point to tell people, if you've got an emergency, pull the box. Yeah. It's not just for fire, even though it says most of them say for fire on them uh you'll find a lot of the stickers on the sides indicate medical uh or emergency right not not just a fire sticker no that's a very good point and and i think it should be said too you know obviously um the, the one interesting thing is as technology has changed boxes still do exist in in several communities and they haven't been removed from many i know new york city had a removal program at one time i know a lot of other cities have done removal programs too uh, because of the upkeep and the costs associated with it and the lack of use and things like that. But they still do play a pivotal role in some neighborhoods across this country. They they do, and and it is mostly in the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Warren Anderson and I uh, have, have spent <clears throat> several trips to New England uh, to just visit cities that still have Gamewell systems. Um, and, and by my count, there's still over 100 that are municipality-based systems, uh, there are very likely are a number of other industrial complexes sure. that still have game well systems. The only one in the West uh, Coast area that we know of is San Francisco. Oh, okay. I didn't know they operated boxes there. Okay. Yeah, but there, there are still uh, probably around a half a dozen in Pennsylvania. There are a handful in New York State. Um one or two in Connecticut, um, and the rest of it, you know, further 
to the northeast. Massachusetts yeah. still has quite a few. Yeah. That's fun. It's such a it's such an iconic look on the on the street corner of you know an urban city. It's just uh, it's something you almost at least I did growing up. It was something that you would expect to see, and now you don't see as many anymore. I'm thankful to have one. I mean, I have my own. That's an actual operating box that I have on my patio. Uh, <laughs> I love it, man. It's it's something that uh, brings back a lot of great memories, and uh, I have the key for it so I can get inside it. So if they if somebody pulls it, it could be reset. But that's something to talk about, too, Gary, is that companies would arrive. They would have to then re- manually reset these boxes, right? Correct. And and you frequently here in Boston uh, remember to reset the box or, or yeah. during the winter, a number of times the, the responding uh, officer will say, I can't reset the box because it's frozen. <laughs> it's frozen, yeah. You know, things of that nature. Yeah. And then with, with the um, – with the growth of that, right, then there came some other styles too, right? So they became a little more involved. Some would, uh, you could actually, as technology improved, you could talk through them, more of an intercom system. There were uh, police yes. boxes then. Uh, do you collect any of the police boxes? I, I do have police boxes, yes. Yeah. You know, the, the police boxes, I, I think, had their origin in Chicago. Okay. Uh, not with Gamewell. Uh, although Gamewell quickly bought into it, and I guess licensed some of the uh, some of the technology there, uh, but I, I believe that's where police boxes uh, originated. And and very early on, police boxes made use of telephones. Yes. And so did the early fire boxes. Actually, you you could uh, plug in a telephone handset in some of the very early fire alarm boxes and, and have a handset plugged in either elsewhere on the line or in the central office uh, to communicate. Uh, but a lot of that communication was still done by a telegraph key. Yeah, and, and so to speak to that, Gary, then maybe you could just clarify a little bit further because I only found out recently that operating chiefs and chiefs aides used to use those boxes to communicate back to transmit additional alarms. Correct. Yeah, which I didn't know that. In all my years in the fire service, I only learned that probably within the last year or two that these boxes were lear- were used also by responding companies to communicate with communications. It's pretty wild. Yes. Yeah, I didn't yes. know that. That's interesting. And one of one of my first visits to the uh, Boston Fire Alarm Office at uh, 59 the Fenway, uh, one of the things that I saw there was a little chart with uh, alphanumeric uh, indications on it, uh, you know, dots and dashes. And I, I often wondered, what are we talking alphanumeric on mm. – on a, on a fire alarm box. But reality was that the Boston uh, setup and, and a few other cities across the country had a setup that their registers, their ticker tapes, um, didn't just punch a circle or a triangle in the paper tape. If, if the telegraph key was held down longer, it would actually tear a hole in the, in the tape for as long as the telegraph key was held down. So therefore you could have dots and dashes and they, they did transmit alphabetic information through that fire alarm system. Yeah. How long that lasted, I don't know, but it was done at the outset. And actually the way Boston fire alarm boxes are configured today, 
they still have that capability. Got it. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. I, I think it's just it, the the longevity of these boxes in the American Fire Service. I mean, they've, they've been here since uh, 1852. 1855, John Gamewell bought the rights to the telegraph, uh, the fire alarm telegraph, right? And so, and then, uh, and then what? And then uh, it says he got later patents in 1859, right? Well, actually, uh, Gamewell bought the the rights to service the South okay. in 1855. Oh, okay. And and then along around the the Civil War, Gamewell being a Southerner, uh, the uh, the Northern states confiscated his patents. Uh, okay. And then there was a guy by the name of Kennard who was from Boston, mm-hmm. who got those patents after the Civil War. And then through whatever dealings with Gamewell, Gamewell got his patents back after the Civil War. Kennard was actually – there, there, there's a fire alarm box in Boston Fire Alarm office that is a Kennard and Company box. And I believe the date in the peak of that is 1866. But Kennard didn't stay with Gamewell too long. Um, he, he actually became the superintendent of fire alarm in Boston, and, and Gamewell went on his own. And uh, I guess he, that's when he got hooked up with Moses Crane, who made a lot of equipment for Gamewell. Okay. And uh, it progressed from there. Got it. Yeah, I'm reading something here. It says the Gamewell Fire Alarm Telegraph Company was later formed in 1879. That was after Kennard. Gamewell systems were installed in 250 cities by 1886 and 500 cities four years later. So by 1890, there were 500 cities that were operating the Gamewell system. Yes. Wow. Now, were there ever any competitors that came to the market? Because you only hear about Gamewell. Right. There, there were lots of competitors yeah. over the years. Um, how many? I, I, I can't even begin to tell you. But Are there any um, standouts? Star, Star Electric mm-hmm. was, was one in Binghamton, New York. And um, they, they were actually a, a Gamewell agent for a period of time, too. So you see, you see Star Electric alarm boxes that are very similar to Gamewell boxes. Right. And um, then there, Moses Crane, who, as I said, made Gamewell's equipment for many years, uh, had a falling out with Gamewell in 1886. Okay. And uh, Gamewell w- was kind of separated from from Crane after that. And Crane was not supposed to compete with Gamewell. That was part of their agreement. Whatever happened between Gamewell and Crane. I haven't been able to determine. Got it. Uh, but by 1891, Crane developed his own company in spite of his agreement with Gamewell to not compete. He organized municipal fire and police. And Gamewell actually sued him hmm. for having done that. But Gamewell lost the suit. Oh, okay. Why I I, I – don't understand the the details. I've tried to read about it, but the, the legalese gets beyond me. Sure, so. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I get it. Yeah, but by a- 1894, then uh, Gamewell was. I'm sorry, Crane was was out of the business, and for whatever reason, that municipal fire and police company morphed into United States Fire and Police, 
Um, somebody told me, and whether this is true or not, I don't know, that it was operated by Crane's son. Mm-hmm. In, in any case, by uh, 1905, uh, you, United States Fire and Police wasn't going anywhere for some reason. They, they, they didn't have enough sales. I, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but people that worked for Crane by 1905 were in, ended up working for Gamewell, and Gamewell got a bunch of the patents. Got it. And uh, Got it. Do you collect anybody else's? Do you have any I of these? I do not. You do not. No space. No, no space. space to collect anything but game well. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about your collection, right? I mean, this okay. is be, this was a childhood fascination that you had with the boxes. And uh, and yes. then as you came up through life, you always had a thing for them, and, and you began collecting? Well, uh, Pottstown took out their system in, uh, let's say, the mid-1990s. I okay. don't recall the exact date. And I, w- I was at an antique store shortly thereafter. I'd, unfortunately, I missed the auction of the boxes. <laughs> um, but I did find two yeah. uh, shortly after that auction, and uh, they are now mine. Did, and that's the box that you fell in love with? That is not the box. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't until many years later. I, you found you know, it. I was on the lookout for box 2641. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, did it show up on eBay one time. At least the at least a box 2641 showed up on eBay. Wow. Uh, I made a co- phone call to the seller, and the guy told me, he said, I'm told this box came from Pottstown, Pennsylvania. No way. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, it's now mine. Yeah, right. <laughs> the short story is it's mine. Sure. Well, that's now, my- I, I, I do want to tell you one thing, uh, Jeremy. Yeah. That, you know, the, the, the current alarm box that's made uh, by Gamewell uh, came out in late 1950, and collectors call it the 1951 style box. It's the it's the alarm box that says for fire in big white letters at the top. Right. And it has the pull down handle, which is referred to as the quick action door. Right. That box is still made. Okay. So we're talking 70 plus years. Yeah. That this same alarm box is made. Now, some of the parts have been tweaked a little bit. Sure. But how many other physical objects that are manufactured can you think of that are virtually identical to the way they were made when they were introduced 70 years ago? Yeah. And when they build these boxes, they still test – they still have to meet all of the specs that were determined way back. So they still have the capability of operating telephone handsets. That capability is still there. That's cool. Now, cities don't use it, but the specifications for these boxes have not changed. Wow. And, so they, and the Gamewell uh, name is now owned by Honeywell Corporation. And that's what I was going to ask you, right? Okay. So right. they were acquired out years ago or what have you, and now Honeywell is still manufacturing these boxes. Correct. Wow, that's cool. That's the one I have. I have that 1951 style box. Is that the most right. common box out there? Well, 
that and and the 1924 style box okay uh which is the i'll say more squarish looking box got it you know the the uh, the more modern box the 51 style has rounded aspects uh to its corners it's it's not yes. as Okay. square but between those two they they would be the most common of course the 24 box was only made until in the very early 1950s so you know it's it's period of time for manufacture is much shorter than its follower yeah that 24 boxes that have a lot more like ornate detail on it and uh, a lot of like scroll work and things yes in the metal yes. okay that's what yes. i in the cast right these are cast iron i would assume are they aluminum? What? Cast cast uh, cast iron w yeah. was bef before that. Okay. Uh, although the very first boxes that are referred to as the 1924 style, yeah. there are some that were made in cast iron. Got it. Okay. Got it. I know there's a municipality near me, Ridgewood, New Jersey. It's not an urban center. It's a suburban neighborhood uh, career fire department, but they they have a considerable amount of boxes. I think still in service to this day. They sure do. I'm very familiar with Ridgewood. Yeah, so I'm very close to and, there, and uh, and yeah. so they they maintain it. They still maintain them. And they also have police boxes on the street. Yeah, I believe they do too. That's right. Now, whether they are operational or not, I don't know, but. Yeah, uh, they well, do have quite a few police boxes. Yeah, next time I go to dinner in Ridgewood, I'll give one a pull and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wake the guys up and let them come over and say hello. I'll buy them a beer. But, there you uh, go. Uh, that's funny. So that's interesting because I was going to ask you uh, how prevalent they are today because a lot of cities have downsized and taken them out just because of the false alarm. And they've also created a lot of countermeasures too, right? Didn't different departments or different cities do different things? They would put a light on it or a alarm right if it yes. went off to draw attention to the box well and 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 that came out as a result of the fire under uh, fire insurance underwriters yes they wanted people to be able to see boxes at night and, and i know uh, i live near philadelphia and mm -hmm. uh, the 1907 report i think by the fire underwriters kind of complained that there there was no way for people to see boxes at night and the 1949 underwriters reports still complained about the same thing now i know by the time the philadelphia system was taken out there were lights on the top of the boxes so yeah. they eventually did get around to doing that got it got it i think also to the pedestals i mean this is this is really like a, a it's art you know like it's americana it it's art right and when you yes. look at some of these with the with the pedestal mounts that they come with and so on. I mean, a lot of them were mounted on, you know, telephone poles and things like that. But the ones that stood alone with the pedestals, do you have any pedestal mounts in your uh, collection? I, I do. I, I have, uh, I don't know, six or eight uh, wow. different pedestals. So Very cool. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're tough to lug around, you know. Yeah. <laughs> pedestals, many of them were cast iron. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, they do break down into, into components, but... If you get one that's rusted together, good luck. Yeah, good luck, right? Wow. Well, it should be said, too, um, these boxes, they're, they, they will uh, last the, the time. I mean, they don't need, they don't need power. Right, they don't. There's no internet. Well, there's yes, no, they, right? they do have. They do need power. But talk. They to are me. powered. Yes, but they don't need public power all the time. Okay. All right. I knew. I, yeah, I was. I was trying to figure. Okay, so explain that to me. All right. Well, if if you go way back, 
they were battery operated and uh, literature talks about gravity batteries. Okay. It talks about succeeding then into storage batteries. And I don't know enough about the electrical aspects Got of it. those batteries to, to, you know, to be able to mm -hmm. get into detail on that. Sure. But, but early on they would have two sets of batteries and one set of batteries was in charge mode for roughly a day, and then midnight or whatever time they agreed upon, they would switch to the second set of batteries, which had been charged, and that set of batteries uh, was used for the next day while the first set was being charged. Oh, okay. and, and systems originally, at least the big city systems, got their power from uh, the streetcar network. Because the streetcar network was a very reliable source of power ah, uh, well before, you know, we had electric lights and so on very commonly in our homes. Right. And then that kind of morphed into, okay, we're only going to have one set of batteries. But Gamewell came up with trickle chargers. Uh, they were called Rectox um, chargers. Okay. And, and, and they were always on the battery. And if the, if the AC power went out to the Rectox charger, the batteries would just seamlessly take over and power the system. Got it. Now, these days, you know, there are much better, much improved batteries and much improved ways of, of charging them and so on and so forth. So, yeah, they, they have power, but... They they don't they don't need to have constant power. Got it. Uh, probably some of the some of the charger systems can allow those get those batteries up to charge and allow them to oh, operate. Wow. Okay. On a battery charge. All right. Interesting. That's good to know. Appreciate that. I didn't know that. And then the other thing I found fascinating too is I know a city near me, um, Patterson, New Jersey, Halden, New Jersey. So Halden, their boxes were uh, attached to their horn system within the borough, right? So yes. that when somebody yes. pulled a box, it would actually ring out the box number with an audible air horn on top of their city hall. Correct. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, when when I when I was growing up in my hometown, Pottstown, mm -hmm. uh, I worked at a grocery store. Right behind the grocery store was a firehouse. And I would frequently be out back doing cutting up cartons or whatever and, and hear the fire alarm go off. And, and I noted that the bell in the firehouse seemed to go faster than the diaphone air horn that I could hear. Yeah. Now, I didn't at that time, I didn't understand all of what was going on. Sure. But now I since know that they wanted to get that fire apparatus on the street quickly. That's right. So the alarm boxes were timed to go faster than the diaphone could handle. So Gamewell, even early on, back in the late 1800s, had what was referred to as a speed transformer. Okay. And it was essentially a punch register that would punch holes in paper at the speed the box was transmitting the code. And that paper would go down through a big loop as the box was transmitting. And then it was pulled back up past another switch at a slower speed. Got it. 
for the diaphone. Yeah. Because the diaphone couldn't blast those that code out as quickly. Yeah, right. Makes sense. So now I, I answered my question from my high school years. Why did that bell operate at a different speed? Yeah, right. Than the diaphone. Right. Well, it was just yeah. I mean, I re I remember that. And then it was I I know my wife where she grew up. They would have a list of the boxes at home, and so, you know, for people that lived in the area that were interested in what's going on, they would have a list of the boxes. And so when you heard the trumpet in town ring out, you know, say it's uh, two taps one and another three, that's box two one three. They would then look on the sheet and see that, oh, okay, two box 213 is Main Street and Carroll Street, and then right. that's the neighborhood that they would respond to. And it's yes. just really, I don't know, man, there's there's just something about, like, that small-town-type feel when, when something like that occurs. I don't know. I think we're missing that now, today. Now, now, some communities, like Pottstown, where I grew up, uh, early on had boxes, and they were somewhat randomly placed throughout town. Right. Well, in 1948, they upgraded the system, and they assigned a four-digit number to every intersection. Now, not every intersection had an alarm box. Right. When they printed the list, the alarm box list actually had a star in front of the locations that were actually alarm boxes. The other locations were referred to as phantom boxes. Ah, okay. And the transmitter in the fire alarm office could be set to any one of those numbers. So if a still call, still alarm came in, yeah, the number could be set on the transmitter and blasted out even though there was no fire alarm box at that location. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Oh, that's cool. And, I didn't and know Game, that. Gamewell advertised that. You know, you can run less wire if you use phantom boxes. How about that, right? You would think you'd be the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> right. <laughs> Buy more of my product, not less, you know? But right. That's, that's, right. Really, that's really interesting. I didn't know that, Gary. Thank you for that. That's a good one. Yeah. I appreciate that. So anyway, well, what a great, great conversation. I mean, I didn't know half of what we talked about today, to be honest with you, until we rolled into this topic today. And uh, it's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast and this segment is to find different things that were early on in the American Fire Service that influenced uh, the way we built and designed today's, uh, you know, excuse me, fire service. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a lot of fun chatting with you today. Are you still collecting? I, it, it, oh, Yes. Yeah, always. I don't looking. have any space, but I still collect. I don't have any space. That's incredible. Is there is there a, a big group of you guys? Do you have a? Is there a large? Well, the, the, the Gamewell Collectors Group on Facebook um, has about well over six thousand members. Okay. Now, many of those members don't frequently post. Probably half of them rarely look at the group. Right. Uh, there, there's a, a much smaller group of uh, hardcore nut jobs like me that <laughs> <laughs> I love like that. to breathe and talk game well all the time. Yeah, I, I, I do have to mention one one colleague, yeah, if, if you would allow. Yeah, me. absolutely. Um, I, yes, I have done a lot of reading, a lot of research into game well history in particular. But there's one collector friend of mine that I met through the, the, the Gamewell Collectors Group. Never met him in per person, but yeah. I still consider him a good friend. That's great. His name is John Ness. 
Okay. John Ness is a former Bangor, Maine firefighter. He now lives in Florida, and and he has just shaken the internet for Gamewell literature. And and fortunately for me, he shares it with me. Wow. And cool. and and I am able to you know research and and compile and conclude a variety of things. And and I really couldn't do it to the extent that I have been able to do it without the help of John Ness. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. And, uh, good for you for, uh, you know, that's, what's nice about commonality, right? You guys have a common love, right? And, and, uh, and you get to share that with each other. And I think that's fun. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Now, and and we could not have done it without the internet. Yeah. Well, that's cool too. Right. So, you know, the most basic type of communication are these fire alarm boxes, but the internet allowed you to to collect and, and to uh, find like-minded people. That's cool. I like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So let me ask you, anything surprise you? Like, do you still find like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that, or <laughs> I've never seen that design, or I've never, you ever get a, a, a one-off that you go, man, that's different. Uh, all the time. Yeah. Now I have another collector friend who's, who's probably one of the first guys that I ever contacted having gotten uh uh, a Gamewell alarm box. His name is Tom Donathan. Yeah. Uh, he, he's in West Virginia and, and he goes by the moniker, the alarm doctor. Okay. And, and he does repair alarm boxes and all kinds of Gamewell equipment. And uh, he, he's the one that kind of turned me on to the different kinds of mechanisms and so on and so forth. And just today we, he sent me a picture no Did you ever see this before? No kidding. That's and, cool. and it, it, it was a, a Gamewell plate that had a design on it that neither one of us had ever, ever t- – we hadn't taken notice of it. it. It was always there. We had never taken notice of it before. Huh. So, yes, I mean he and I and, and some others, we talk about the new Gamewell fact of the day. That's cool. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. Fun. We are always coming across things that we didn't know. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And to know that they're still being produced, manufactured, and they're being maintained in some cities across the country, I think is fun too, because it's, it's going to keep going and there will be new collectors that come along and new people that gain interest. And maybe it'll be another kid on his way to school for a bunch of years like you falling in <laughs> love with it too. I think it's, I think it's yeah. great, Gary, truly. We, we do have some new young collectors in the group, but a lot of the newer firefighters don't know about game well and fire alarm systems right at least not the old telegraph systems so. well and that's why listen maybe we could pique some interest today with this episode and the in the the community that listens to it um you know i think it'll be uh, fun to see if uh there's some uh feedback and and some enjoyment from others that don't know much about them i think it'll be great i i, I thank you so much for doing this because i i just looked at the clock and I, where did the time go? That's exactly what happens. <laughs> you know, this is this has been a fantastic conversation. We've been going for about 40 minutes. And, um, yep. you know, it's just I enjoy this, Gary. And I, I appreciate you trusting me today to to get a little bit your, of your story and to talk about the Gamewell fire alarm system. And to be honest, I think you're going to bring a lot of value in historical uh, information to our audience and our listeners. And so I thank you very much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it. And I thank you very much for doing it. Good. Stay right here. I'm going to sign off uh, the show, and then I'm going to come right back to you. So just hang on one sec, okay? Okay. Great. Yep. Everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast. 
Gary Spohn, what an incredible historian and gentleman talking about the Gamewell Fire Alarm System. We're going to put some links at the bottom of the narrative. If you're interested, we'll put some links out there where you can find more information about this, Gary's passion, and what they're doing for uh, preserving the Gamewell Systems. And thank you for tuning in. We, we uh, thank you for your support in the community. And do me a favor, take this conversation, take it back to the firehouse and talk about it. Because when we talk about the job, we are making the job better. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Jeremy, National Fire Radio.